Hello and welcome to The Family of Things, a podcast series of ideas, life and how we live it. I'm Helen Shaw and in this series I get to talk to people who are living life with passion and ambition, to talk to them about their life, their journey and their ideas about the future. And today my guest is a woman who, you might say, has a bit of newspaper ink in her blood, but her journey now has brought her to work with what is one of the most iconic travel brands for all of us, The Lonely Planet. Noreen Hegarty, it's great to meet you. I think we share a similar beginning in life in terms of newspapers. But take me back a little bit further, Noreen, as to where it all started for you. When did you want to become a journalist? Uh, 1976. I know exactly when. Tita Herrema was kidnapped. He was a Dutch industrialist who was based in Limerick and he was kidnapped by Eddie Gallagher and Marion Coyle of the IRA and he was held for three weeks in a house in Monastrevin in County Kildare. And I was a child and at the time my parents were going up and down a lot to West Clare. My grandparents lived there and we were passing Monastrevin and I was just so convulsed by this story. It just seemed to me that this was happening in real time. We were driving in a car in the vicinity of where somebody was being held and I was so interested in it and of course my mom was saying we're not stopping the car there we're not gawping at these people and I didn't look at it like that at all I looked at it as being at the centre of a story and knowing what was happening and I think that's where the curiosity began. But for you then was newspapers in your family I mean what kind of family background did you come from Noreen? No there were no newspapers in my family whatsoever my father grew up in a farm in West Clare and got a scholarship to university in the 1950s which was somewhat unusual and he did civil engineering and then he subsequently moved to Dublin and set up his own business and we were all educated grew up in Dublin but I think from him certainly there came a respect for education and the sense that your opportunity in life is often through education but just going right back I suppose my, I have an uncle in West Clare who was involved in the civil defence. He used to go out when there was a really bad storm and essentially look for bodies along the coastline. And again, as a very young child, I remember thinking, my God, this is amazing. Like this is, you know, to be in the centre of something like that happening. And I suppose initially it seemed like it was just a big adventure. And then from that came curiosity and from that came, I suppose, a sense of I really want to do this and actually... I don't want to do anything else. I just want to do journalism. But there was no history and there was nobody else previously in my family that had been involved in it. And while you're a Dubliner and you grew up in Dublin, Claire's really a big part of your family and your life. Yeah, it is. I mean, my mother is from Milton Malbay. Her brothers were all involved in music, still are involved in music. And from the town, a lot of first cousins. I think we counted up about 42 first cousins on my mum's side. At some Christmas so, party. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of very strong links to West Clare. And then my father is from La Hinch, from a smaller family. All of our childhood summers were spent in that environment. And it was quite a different life to the life that you had in Dublin, where you were somewhat constrained. Whereas when you went to West Clare, you could wander all day. For some reason, we always knew when to come home for dinner. But there were no limits on what you could do or who you could talk to or, you know, kind of the adventures you could have. Now, obviously, you end up becoming an editor of a Sunday newspaper in the Sunday Tribune, which was very unusual. It still is. There aren't very many women editors in Ireland. But how did it start? I mean, you went to DIT, I think. And from there, how did your career progress after you came out of college? I did. I went to DIT. And actually, in those days, they used to have what they called an ANCO placement way before internships, I think, or we even knew what that word was. And in your second year, you would go and work in a provincial newspaper for the summer. And it was kind of a lucky draw. And I got the Tullamore Tribune. And actually, I remember being really quite upset at the time because I knew nothing about the Midlands. I felt I had some link with the West Coast. But what was I going to do in Tullamore? And it turned out to be the 
most amazing experience. And I actually went back when I finished college and worked there again. There was a chap called Seamus Dooley who's very involved in the National Union of Journalists. He was there at the time. An old style editor called Jeff Oakley, secretary called Mary Bracken and me as the girl. And you went out and you covered court cases and you covered county council meetings and you met the people you wrote about in the street the next day. And if you got something wrong, they told you. The paper was a weekly paper, so, you know, it was the best training ground ever. And I absolutely loved it. And I made fantastic friendships and people who were very influential in my life subsequently. Then came back to Dublin and just started freelancing, recognised that there was nobody covering a couple of district courts. I kind of did a little bit of a feasibility study to see could I make a living out of this. The district courts in Rathfarnham at the time and Kilmainham were only sporadically covered. So I would just turn up. And if a story happened, I would send the story into the Herald at the time and get paid for it. And if it didn't, I didn't get paid. And I suppose then you kind of you're available for work. So I would then ring the news editor when I got to know the two news editors in both papers at 9 a.m. every morning. And I would be ready to walk out the door. I would be dressed. I would be up and out. And if somebody had rung in sick, you'd get a day's work. Would you say that that's your that's your gift is knowing a good story? Yeah, I, well, identifying a good story is an important thing. And I suppose some of that is innate and some of that can be learned. I suppose I wasn't a reporter for a very long period of time. I went into management at 25, which was, you know, really pretty young. There was no big plan. I didn't start with a career plan to do anything like that. I think what happened was I just looked at the guy and it was always a guy in the job ahead of me and sort of thought, you know what, I think I could do his job. And then if the chance came up, I went for it. And, and it was as simple as that. And I also think I had my children pretty early in my 20s. Um, and I think that absolutely galvanised me in terms of career because suddenly a mortgage had to be paid and children had to be fed and it wasn't just about me anymore. And I think I became quite serious about my career at quite a young age without even realising I was doing that. But I would say to you, I think my better skill is actually identifying talent. Because that's what I get the greatest satisfaction out of is identifying something in people. And very often it's something they may not see themselves. And if you give them the right environment and you encourage them and people can blossom in that. And, and I love seeing them do things they didn't even think they could do. And that to me would be what I enjoy most about it. And I think, yes, there's a relationship in journalism to that, but it's become much more than journalism, I suppose, as I've got on and, and survived and had to adapt. But talk to us how that happened. I mean, what kind of opportunity were you getting at 25? Um, I remember a job came up as an assistant news editor in the Evening Herald and I'd been working as a reporter on the floor and three of us went for it, two fellas and myself. And I really didn't think that I had a chance of getting this job. And I remember the meeting to offer me the job because they were all internal candidates. It wasn't an external competition. And I had to then say to them, you know, I'm really pleased to get this but I need to tell you something, I'm five months pregnant. And to their credit, the two guys that were involved, one of whom is now deceased, both kind of said spontaneously, congratulations, that's marvellous. And of course, realising actually it was pretty catastrophic because it meant I was going to be going on maternity leave in a short period. You know, so I did take the maternity leave and then came back. And I was with independent newspapers for about 15 years. So, you know, it was really just working your way up the ladder. And, you know, at that time I thought, well, you know, talent outs. And if you work really hard and if you're good at what you do, that's all you need. I learned subsequently in my career, that's not all you need. And it's a bit more complicated. You know, the fact that you went into management, but also became a mother really set up those two identities for you, probably quite lucky because I think a lot of people get caught in the environment where it gets very difficult the older you get if you hadn't. 
Yeah, but I think when you're in your 20s and I was 25 having my first child, you kind of don't know any different. You just get on with it. You haven't really established a lifestyle as such. That's my interpretation of it anyway, that you just do what needs to be done. There weren't many women who were mothers in jobs like that at the time. There wasn't much understanding or much support for it. And some of the guys I work with to this day will slag me and say, like we were at, you know, 7 a.m. news conference. And I'd go, sorry, just give me one second, guys. And I'd be in the phone going, the green socks are in the bottom drawer on the left because a child was getting dressed for school or whatever it was. In the beginning, I did find that quite intimidating. I remember at one stage being pregnant. I have three children being pregnant and being at a meeting and realising that I was the only woman in a room of maybe 20 men and needing to use the bathroom and feeling embarrassed to kind of get up from a boardroom table and go to the bathroom. I mean, I got over that, I can tell you, you know, over the years. And I think I almost went the other extreme. I, you know, I made it very clear that I thought it was perfectly legitimate for me to take two hours off and get my hair done if the guys were taking a couple of hours off to play a game of golf or whatever equivalent. And it wasn't adversarial. It was just that I suppose I developed more confidence as time went on. It was never that they were being difficult about it. It was my sense of being, I suppose, the only one and maybe being intimidated as a result because of that. And I suppose within that, you had that strength of character, but vision to see yourself in the chair making the decisions. Do you think that came naturally or what gave you that courage to say, yeah, I'm the one? I don't know. I mean, I think back, I think in a professional situation, I always had confidence. In personal situations, nothing like the same confidence. But I always sensed that I knew what the right thing to do was. Now, I wasn't always right. But I sensed that I had a voice and I had to make a contribution. And very often I would come at something perhaps in a different angle, maybe because I was in very strongly male environments and, you know, it was just an alternate voice. But, you know, I always had that inner conviction that I could do it. I think some of that management or leadership ability, whatever you like to call it, is innate. I do think that there is an element of that that's just in a person. And I think there's another element of that that develops in the right environments and with the right mentoring and with the right people, you know, to give you guidance and direction. And mentioning mentoring and guidance, where did you get that from yourself? Who guided you? Who supported you? I would cite two people in terms of being extremely influential in terms of my career, both of whom unfortunately have have passed away. One was Sean McConnell of the Irish Times, who was a great personal friend of mine, had never worked in a senior management capacity himself in his career, always remained on the floor as a journalist, but had an unerring sense of character, of person, of a way to approach something. And for me was the person that I could go to and say something out loud. And I think everybody in any kind of senior role needs somebody they can go to that they can say what they're thinking out loud and very often you know the answer the answer is in you you know the right thing to do but you need a safe place and a person that you trust that you can say it to so Sean was very much that for me he was like my sounding board for my entire career I miss him terribly still and the other person was Nuala Foylon who has also passed away who was a very good friend of mine and Nuala was the opposite because Nuala wouldn't be soft at all about it she wouldn't countenance any you know weakness at all I remember her telling me at one stage I think I'd just come out of a court case and I'd gone straight on to Pat Kenny at the time perhaps was doing the evening show on RTE and I thought I'd done a great job in it and I said what do you think and she said I think you sounded like an excited 11 year old <laughs> And I took it so personally. Honestly, I didn't do radio for a decade. So, But Nuala was fantastic. She just was, here was a woman who had done it, who could somehow show that women could be taken seriously, could achieve things, could be respected. I mean, Nuala, a million times more talented than I will ever be. But she was a fantastic ally. Great woman. And I suppose it's often really good to mention people like Nuala because there is a generation that led in all of these environments. I mean, there were some women within independent newspapers, but there wasn't that sort of sense of camaraderie 
in my experience of the women who were a generation ahead of me. And if I'm really candid and honest about it, I learned how not to manage from the male editors I worked with because I saw how their attitudes affected me. You know, you go into a meeting and you come out and you're thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And I always felt in my own head, if I ever get to a position like that, I want people to come out of my office and be more inspired and want to work harder and want to try more rather than coming out feeling so disillusioned and so useless because you've been bawled at. And that was that era where, you know, it was incredibly aggressive. It was absolutely normal for editors to tear strips off people and to do it in a very public way. But it was a really good learning curve because in many ways it took the ego out of what you did. I don't agree with it. It wasn't the way I ever managed. In my view, it's a very insecure management style because invariably the guys who behave like that are afraid of getting found out themselves. Whereas if you can adopt a collaborative approach, number one, you don't have all the responsibility personally, but you also empower people to do their best. I think it's 2005 you become editor of the Sunday Tribune. You know, sadly gone. But from you, what was it like to to walk into that role? I had gone for the job two years previously and hadn't got the job and then was offered the job, didn't apply for it or anything like that, was offered the job and began it in the beginning of 2005. And I just saw this as my opportunity. Now, I knew that there was no money. I knew that things were difficult in that environment. I remember giving like a maiden speech to the team in the Sunday Tribune saying I wanted to find a different way to do things. I felt we were going to go on a journey. It was going to be collaborative. I wasn't going to preside over a tyranny. I wanted a meritocracy. And I remember subsequently people who became very good friends of mine looking at me kind of quizzically, of course, They hadn't been in the environment I'd been in where it was so aggressive that all you want to do is batten down the hatches and, you know, kind of make everybody go away. But I think they didn't know what to make of me in the beginning. They were really cautious of what they saw as a tabloid type person coming into this environment. I'd come from the Evening Herald. Of course, they didn't know I'd come from the Irish Times to the Evening Herald, you know. And as a professional, you adapt to the environment that you're in. And I thought there was a fantastic opportunity in the Sunday Tribune to bring some of those elements of, you know, simplifying things from that tabloid environment and marrying that with just doing things that were interesting and diverse and exciting. And I was really fortunate. I mean, I inherited a fantastic team in the Sunday Tribune. I also built a fantastic team in the Sunday Tribune. And I think the testament to that was that when we did close in 2011, despite the fact that we were in the grip of recession at that point, the team were all employed within a really short period of time. So they were recognised as being quality journalists and, and they've gone on to do amazing things since. I think you've described it as your happiest time in work. But from the perspective of thinking about it from 05 to, I suppose, its end, what would you be proudest about? I mean, I think you can look back and you can see, yes, we ran stories that ultimately led to the resignation of a government minister. That was never the objective. You know, your job is not to lead to anybody's downfall. Your job is essentially to report on what you find, to lift up rocks, to look under them and to make sure that it's accurate and truthful and and therefore you bring it to a wider audience. I felt that it was very important that we had our finger on the pulse of things. Um, So there were things like that that we did. But for me personally, and this is purely personal, one of the most satisfying elements of all of my time there was I went myself with Mark Condren, who's an amazing photographer, to Uganda. And we did a piece on children who'd been orphaned by AIDS. So these were children who were essentially rearing their brothers, their sisters are being reared and their parents had died of AIDS. And we're in um, Masaka, which is like about four hours out of Kampala in the middle of nowhere. We go into this brick house that Goal has built for um, these children. We went with Goal to live in and they've got a latrine and they all cook outdoors. It's a totally alien experience to me, despite the fact that I have travelled quite extensively around the world. This, the only thing I could ever describe this like is if 
must have been what it was like in famine times in Ireland. And the children that you're dealing with are considerably smaller. They're more malnourished. Their lives are very difficult. And we get into this house and there is an older brother of 13 who's rearing two younger brothers of 11 and 10. And the 11-year-old brings us into his bedroom and his bedroom is a bed. It's got a mosquito net that he's got from the charity. And on the wall, it's his pride and joy. It's a poster of Manchester United. And it just so happens that it's exactly the same poster that my 11-year-old son has in his house in South Dublin. So I wrote a piece about this and it was really about trying to explain that it's about people. It's not about third world. It's not about, it's about the connection between individuals. And we got a huge response to that. In fact, we got a single donation of €250,000 to goal as a result of the wow. piece. But that to me is the kind of satisfying journalism that I felt I could dip back into. I didn't do an awful lot of it because I think, you know, Bill Deeds of The Telegraph said, well, time who edits the editor and I think it's a very good point you shouldn't be writing all the time when you're editing you need to maintain that little bit of distance but things like that to me were immensely satisfying I mean we did the big stories and we did break stories I wonder now and we're only looking back a couple of years that has changed so radically is there the big deal about the exclusive that certainly I had for most of my career anymore because once it's out in an online environment does anybody care who broke it? Does it matter? Yes, they do care in terms of credibility, but everything maintains a life of its own. In those days, you know, it was very much more associated with the title. I think that has changed pretty radically. Yeah, I mean, we both grew up in an environment where making the front page as a reporter and having your byline on the front page <laughs> was what it was all about when you went into the newspaper. And that's no longer the issue because people aren't buying the print edition. So the idea of, of who leads or who breaks has changed. It's context and depth and story. But I'm curious with this, when you're editor, the courage, but also the ability to say, we're going to do it beyond maybe sometimes pressure from legal to say, let's not because it's a bit dodgy or also pressure from owners and managers to say, let's not. Were you under a lot of pressure as editor to toe the line? I think because I'd worked in independent newspapers for a 15 year period, I developed an approach which subsequently actually was not to my benefit. But at the time, it enabled me to do this job. I bullied up. The only way you survived in independent newspapers is if you were the victim or if you were the bully. That was the environment. It was when I say it was aggressive, it was extremely aggressive. I have never experienced anything like it since. I think it was particularly so at that time. My approach to that was that I never bullied anybody. That wasn't the way I did things. But I think with hindsight, when I analyse my own behaviour now, I bullied up. So I took no nonsense from senior management. In fact, in many ways, I look back and I think, my God, I was so arrogant about it all. You know, that we were certain and we knew what was right. But in a sense, you needed to be a bit Teflon coated to make those decisions and you needed to have a certainty that you were doing the right thing. Now, I was really fortunate. I had great people around me. I had people that could say to me, for God's sake, are you off your head? You know, and I think that's really important as well, that there are people that can speak to you and speak to the truth and not feel that they can't, not feel that their job is on the line or that you're going to react in any way. And of course, you'd have arguments about it. But it was never personal. It was important that I heard what they had to say. So I think the decisions that we made and the judgments that I made personally were informed, were, you know, with consideration to a variety of different viewpoints. In terms of pressure from above, occasionally, yes, there was pressure from above. Occasionally, there were perspectives that, you know, weren't in line with me. I always kind of took the approach that I think in that environment, you just have to get on with stuff. You can't Think about the things you can't do. You've got to focus on the things you can. So I would say that two, two to three percent of the time, probably I had 
viewpoints that I sometimes had to capitulate to. But most of the time I was free and I was independent to do what I needed to do. And you've talked about the days which were the big, great days when stories broke or it was an environment of really making a difference. But what were the bad days beyond the end in 2011 when it closes? What were the toughest times and some of the worst days? Very difficult times when you had legal actions and you can write them off as being kind of, you know, the Oscars of our profession when you get a response to things. But, you know, you really have to hold your nerve in those situations. And particularly when there's extensive pressure brought to bear. I mean, I'm thinking of one particular story and I won't go into the details of it, but the pressure was enormous. Everything that we wrote was subsequently vindicated. But at the time, there's that, even though you know you're right, it's a very lonely place to be in. And at the end of the day, you're the editor, you close the door, you're on the line. You're not trying to do something just to sell newspapers. You're not trying to do something just to be dramatic or to draw attention. You're actually trying to do the right thing. And all those other things matter. Of course, you've got to be cognizant of all of the other elements of the business. But ultimately, you're trying to tell the truth. And you're trying to reveal something that people didn't know before. And when it ends in 2011, I've seen you say that it's a scar that still hurts. What was it like to see that end for you in something that you'd built and seeing that all become part of print history in Ireland? Yeah, it was horrible because you have hired people, you've brought people on a journey with you because you're going to do something good and you're going to achieve something and it's going to be worthwhile and you're all going to be the best that you can be. And then you can't. It's a bit like, I suppose, Ernest Hemingway said, how do you go bankrupt? You know, very slowly and very quickly. It was like that with the Sunday Tribune. How do you, you never think that this is going to be the end. You think we'll retrieve it or, you know, if we make this cut back and we'll protect the core, whatever we do. So we may have to cut down our arts coverage, for example, or, you know, not do dance anymore or whatever decision you make. And they're never easy decisions, but they're decisions that you've got to make. And my attitude was always, I couldn't think about the people I had to let go. And I hated doing that. And it was horrible. I had to think about the people whose jobs I was protecting. There was a period of a couple of years before we closed where it was just incredibly difficult. And you're always trying to do, you know, that awful phrase, more with less. And it's actually quite exhausting. And I only subsequently discovered how utterly exhausted I was when I went to into, into a new environment. And I remember when I joined Lonely Planet going to my first budgetary meeting and we're talking about 10%. Now I'd been in an environment of 40% budgetary cuts and then you come back a few months more and, and there'd be another 20% off your year-end budget. And suddenly I'm in Lonely Planet and we're talking about 10% and I'm thinking in my own head, happy days, 10%, I could do it for you now. No problem. And then I realised we're talking about building something. We're talking about a 10% increase in budget for next year. This is mind-blowing. I mean, this is just so energising to be in an environment where you're going to build something. And just before we get to the glories of the Lonely Planet, in a sense, you went from Sunday Tribune into a senior digital role with the independent group. I mean, in thinking about this roots of where we come from in print journalism and the front page and chasing the story, has digital changed our world to the extent that part of the story that we come from as news journalists and where we started no longer exists? 
I think it probably does no longer exist, but that doesn't mean that people aren't interested in journalism. You know, that platform is no longer relevant to users nowadays. And I suppose we call them readers, we call them users. You know, it's our audience ultimately. So you've got to find different ways to access that audience. And that's what it's about. In fact, personally, I probably read more widely than I ever did because I've got access to more material than I ever did. I mean, you think back to the old days where they'd have a death notice in the Irish Independent American papers, please copy. And that was the only way of communicating things. I mean, now everything is is readily accessible. So I do think that there are elements of that era that we absolutely want to keep. And that's your authority, your authenticity, the credibility that you bring by investigating something, by people knowing they can trust the source of this information. We should never lose that. But hey, the digital era has brought dynamism and energy and immediacy and fantastic ways of telling stories that we just couldn't have imagined. And who knows what's going to happen in the next decade? I mean, exactly. I mean, when you talk as a, as a child being curious about the story or or the Harima kidnapping and following it, that's what's the same, the consistency. But if you take something like Twitter and the impact it's had on how we realise what's happening in the world of the story, it's so profound. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what you talk about there, Helen, in a sense, goes to the core of what's happening in journalism now. And I think there's a real difficulty for what I'm calling legacy news organisations in disrupting themselves, in adapting to this new way of doing things, because print has been the way, you know, since the Gutenberg Bible back in the 15th century. And then suddenly to have to go about your business in a completely different way. And Personally, when I was in that environment, I don't think I could possibly have conceived of ways to deal with this the way I can now that I'm out of that environment. And I went into independent newspapers in 2011 with a mandate to instigate transformational change. Nobody wanted to change from the very top down. Well, everybody wanted everybody else to change, but they didn't want to change individually. <laughs> and I didn't have support to carry out any of the changes that I thought were necessary, um, you know, and it was a difficult period. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't have friends in the environment. I didn't have allies. I didn't have support. Um, and I was the cuckoo in the nest. I had been out of the group for a period of six years. I think I'd changed dramatically in that period. I'd had to change because I was in a survival mode with a newspaper that I thought was worth saving. I thought the Tribune was the kind of work that we did. I thought was was valuable and I went back in with a lot of entrepreneurial skills that just didn't fit a larger organisation. You were saying earlier Noreen that as a woman going into management and leadership in news media particularly in print that right through it you thought talent was enough and that that drove you on and really at a much more advanced stage of your career possibly really as, as recent as when the Tribune collapsed that you realised that that wasn't enough? I think for anyone, I don't think it's just specifically to our gender. I, I do think that's true for, for men as well. Um, I think I took the perspective that, you know, in a very aggressive environment, I was going to protect my teams no matter what. And the more pressure that was put on me, the more performance I needed from the team. So therefore, it couldn't flow downhill. I had to find a way to absorb that pressure myself, but still inspire, still motivate people and make sure that we got even better results, despite the fact that we had no money or that, you know, we'd lost staff or the redundancies were being made or people weren't being replaced or whatever the, the challenge was at that time. What I didn't do was I didn't bring senior management on that journey with me. I was the pioneer. I was the one that was minding everybody or I was the one protecting everybody. And going back to what I said earlier, that bullying up, that sense of, well, you know, you inspire me, you show me what you're doing. And, you know, if I'm frank about it, I didn't find a lot of inspiration in the senior management I worked for. Very lucky now that I do have that. But I think that I didn't make the right alliances. I didn't have people in my corner 
when it came down to it. And you were too I was isolated. I was isolated, absolutely. Do you and think that's something though that women sometimes it's an awareness about it that often we maybe we're not seeing that as part of managing in senior roles like that, that you actually need a team with you. You can't do it all your own. No, absolutely. And I think everybody who was working on my team was with me and I think I had fantastic loyalty there. What I didn't do was I didn't build those relationships with the people at the senior level or the people at board level who ultimately you need on your side to achieve things. So I think that's where I made the mistake. The other point I'd make about being a woman, Helen, is it's really hard to keep it all going because you're incredibly busy and home responsibilities, no matter what anybody says, do come back to women most of the time. And you can have a great partner and somebody who, you know, is really supportive of you. But at the end of the day, very often it comes back to you as a mother, you as that central figure at home that just needs to be the one that gets stuff done or decides on the delegation of stuff, which in itself can be time consuming. So I think there's a bit there of at the time when you're climbing that career ladder and I was in my 30s at that stage, the children were relatively young. It is just a very, very busy life. So I don't know that you have all that time to do the networking, you know, the evening stuff, the pub stuff. And even if you could do it, would you choose to do it? Is it the world that is comfortable for you? It's not really for most women. So I think that there needs to be that critical mass in a work environment where women are not alone. And where it's not seen as odd that you might have to go and and pick kids up from school. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, certainly throughout my career, the assumption was that you would go drinking with the editor. That was just it. The editor was going drinking and it was very much a drink based culture. You were there and you were kind of there for as long as you needed to be there. You had to be on side. You had to be trustworthy. You had to be in the group. And I think that's where I went wrong because I don't think I was trustworthy. I think they saw me as an alien, as somebody that you couldn't, you know, you never know how she might react to that one. And I don't think that was fair personally, but I wasn't there to counter it. Do you think it's changed? I mean, beyond the fact that we can see newspapers have had to change, are you seeing that there's a legacy? I think there are more women coming through, yes. When I look around and you look at the board makeups or you look at operational roles, decision-making roles, no, it hasn't changed. You know, as a woman, I got to a point in my career where it was almost like, despite everything, I'm going to do this. It was like that intransigence in me that said, I'm not going to let this break me. You know, I'm going to do it. And in fairness, I had a husband who was very supportive. He would talk me down very often and I would be the one saying, that's it, I've had enough. We're selling the house. We're going to downsize. We're going to have a simpler life. And he calls it Plan B, subsection. Z, caveat Y, which was a B&B in the West of Ireland and to hell with everyone. (laughs) And a tea shop, that was the other element to it. And he would often talk me down. So I was lucky in that I had some sanity within my life. So talk to us about the Lonely Planet and this leap from Dublin to London and taking up a very different role, still editorial, still about information in a sense. The journalist DNA is still there, but the Lonely Planet, how did that happen? I wanted the Lonely Planet role very badly. i I talked to a couple of people, one other group based in London, one based in, in Asia. And once I talked to these guys, they got me. I got them. I had never met them before I started the role. I applied through the Guardian. I did all of my interviews by Skype. I walked into the room the first day and I thought, oh, my God, I don't even know what height they are. <laughs> so, um, but it, I just I knew it was going to work. And I was also looking for something that was niche because I still feel that mainstream news, breaking news, journalism of that kind, nobody's ever going to pay for it. You're never going to monetize it. You can buy a service from wherever. I do it myself. I Google something. I find a paywall. I'll Google it. I'll 
go somewhere else. So I felt I needed to be in something that was specialised. And I've always loved travel. I've always been interested in travel. So for me, it was a dream job and the perfect match. And tell us what you're doing. What is the actual gig? Well, I started with Lonely Planet as managing destination editor in London. And essentially, I managed 20 editors who look after every region in the world. So, you know, we've an editor for Eastern Europe, an editor for North Asia, an editor for Southeast Asia. And they really are the experts within that region. And then they commission all of the content in that region. So at any one time, we could have about 250 writers in 46 countries. So we're very extensively covering the globe always updating content. And I really went in as part of a digital transformation. We've been a really successful books company for 40 years. We needed to change our content creation model says that we were essentially digital first. So we were updating information, making sure we had it up to scratch rather than the older way of doing a book contract every 18 months. And we also had to bring in social media activity for our writers, video, learning, shooting, all of that end of things, and then writing articles for LonelyPlanet.com as well. So it has very much been a velvet revolution, but fantastic team, really lucky to have them and managed that team until March this year, moved back to Dublin in March this year. We were looking for an office in London and I mentioned to our CEO, you know, would you not consider Ireland? And there are lots of good reasons. There's you lots know. of space. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's talent. This geographic location is good. And there are incentives to be here. And there's thing going on. <laughs> so it, the conversation began there, really. I was in Nashville in October. I was asked to sort of put some bones on this. And essentially, by the 23rd of December, I was out for dinner in West India Quay and I got a phone call saying, would you move back to Ireland and run the operation for us? And I had to say, could you please repeat that? Because my husband and son were in the restaurant and I couldn't go back in and go, I think I've I been think asked. we're going back. I needed to be certain. So, um, I think we're packing, lads. It, it, yeah, it just happened from there. So... But ironically, Maureen Wheeler, Maureen and Tony Wheeler began the company with their first trip across Asia on a shoestring back in 1972. And Maureen is Irish. She's from Northern Ireland. So I suppose there's a bit of a coming full circle there. So in in some ways, coming back, you didn't really think you were going to be back in Dublin so quickly. I had no intention of being back in Dublin, being perfectly honest with you. Absolutely loved living in London. I'm in London still quite a lot, but I report to Nashville, so I'm there quite a bit as well. But no, didn't think that there was a future for me in Ireland. The role I'm in now, I'm operations director for Ireland, so it's a lot broader than just being involved on the content side of things. But I'm still involved in the content side of things. And we've set up a global news hub here. We're looking at lots of different uh, platforms that we want to work in, like audio and things and like that. And you're employing a crew here then. You're once again, like in the Tribune, finding, identifying and developing talent. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got some admin roles, we've got finance roles and we've got developers within this office. So it's it's been fantastic and very exciting. And what about the travel side of it? I mean, one has a sense that being as you are a senior player now in the Lonely Planet, that you'd actually get to travel a lot. Ironically, Helen, I travelled, I mean, I've always travelled extensively and I've always been the type of person that has put money into travel instead of money into other probably more sensible things. But ironically, I've travelled less since I joined Lonely Planet, just for time reasons. Just because when you're going to the United States every two to three months and then you've got some time off, you go, do I want to go on a long haul flight again? So I've travelled, I suppose, in Europe and more short breaks. But you know what? I think that's actually a feature of, a, of the way a lot of people are living now. Holidays are for shorter periods of time, perhaps more often. But I think in a lot of senior management roles, you can't just walk out and be gone for three to four weeks, as wonderful as that sounds. So very often it is about tagging on time if you're going to a conference somewhere or if you're traveling to the United States anyway, you'll go and do something else in that environment. That said, I work with people who just 
live to travel. And there are times that you sort of feel, I need to find somewhere really interesting to go to because how can I compete with Machu Picchu and, you know, um, you know North Korea and places like this? Milton Malby. <laughs> well, it's a pretty nice place. But I guess I suppose looking at it from the future, I mean, what's in your head for the next and coming phase beyond even the Lonely Planet. I mean, I'd always imagine that Noreen Hegarty has things which are still on a list and you probably had lists about things you might want to do. Are there brave and beautiful dreams happening that you still want to realise? There never was a list, actually. (laughs) Believe it or not. Honestly, I mean, yes, I am pretty driven. But in terms of ambition, it never began as that. It only ever began as looking up what somebody else was doing, saying, that's interesting. I never wanted to be bored. And I have this theory that everybody should change direction every five to six years. You know, I think you get 18 months in a job to set out your stall. I think you've got five years to make things happen generally. For me, it's very much about the adventure. I mean, it's I don't know where is next, but I hope there's a next. You know, it would be awful to think that there isn't anything exciting out there. But what that's going to be, you know, we're doing lots of innovative things in Lonely Planet. Because I think you have to have, despite the fact that we are 40 something plus company, you've got to have a spirit of entrepreneurship, a kind of a startup culture, even though you're in an established brand. And you've always got to be thinking ahead to what's the next thing? Where do we need to be now? How do we innovate for that? And that to me, I love that, that brainstorming, that ideas element of stuff. And then talking about it, thinking about it, but then ultimately it's about making it happen. Noreen Hegarty, once of this parish with the Irish Times, Sunday Tribune and The Independent, now very much with The Lonely Planet. Thank you very much for sharing your journey. Thanks, Ellen. Thanks, Ellen.